I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. In any argument about who was the most American musician of the shape-shifting 20th century, Gershwin, Ellington, Copeland, Miles, Sinatra, John Cage, maybe Elvis, there's no getting away from Leonard Bernstein, a giant figure at the very center of it all. Mid-1950s, Charlie Parker has died scandalously young. Miles and Coltrane are about to record Kind of Blue. Duke Ellington is making the best-selling album of his lifetime at the Newport Jazz Festival. Leonard Bernstein, not yet 40, has composed ballets, show songs, and two symphonies. He's conducting Beethoven at Carnegie Hall, an opera with Maria Callas in Milan. And in 1955, he is sweating through the birth of something strange for Broadway. A Romeo and Juliet story out of Shakespeare about gangs in New York. Dancers enact the warfare to jazz harmonies and Cuban rhythms. The show, of course, is West Side Story. Just as the tryout performances begin, Bernstein jumps to another of his many tracks and signs on to be conductor of the New York Philharmonic, which had been Mahler's orchestra and Toscanini's. These are the multiple Lenny Bernsteins remembered on his 100th anniversary this year. We are focusing this hour on one chapter of the life, West Side Story. Our critical guide is musicologist and writer Nigel Simeone, who compiled the archive of Bernstein's intimate letters and wrote the book on the music of West Side Story. We've got a man and a moment and a masterpiece, most of us think. It's post-war America, Eisenhower time, but it's also boom time in the burbs, blackboard jungle in American cities, or so we were told. Uh, and this guy of enormous talent, a pianist, composer, conductor, incredible ambition. I mean, set this thing in motion. It's an amazing story. Of course, he didn't set it in motion all by himself. I mean, in fairness, the idea originally came from Jerry Robbins, who wanted to do some sort of updated Romeo and Juliet. And he talked to uh, Bernstein and to Arthur Lawrence way back in 1949. And two weeks after that, Bernstein sent Arthur Lawrence a note saying, you know, I'm not sure this is going to be for me. And they were all crazy busy and did nothing for the next five years. And uh, legend has it that the next time they talked about it seriously was when Lenny and Arthur Lawrence were at a hotel in L.A. and were kind of dangling their feet in the swimming pool and read this story about Puerto Rican gangs. And suddenly the ideas they had had for Jews against Catholics coalesced into something infinitely more interesting and a lot less like Arby's Irish Rose. And uh, suddenly... Suddenly the idea came alive and the real appeal, I think, for Bernstein was that by bringing Puerto Ricans into the story, he also brought with him the idea of loads and loads of Latin American rhythms and that was always something that was uh, a huge kind of stimulus and spur to him. He loved them. He'd loved them ever since he first discovered them listening to Cuban radio stations in, you know, 1941 when he had a holiday at Key West. So suddenly the whole thing kind of came alive in his imagination in 1955. How do you describe it as a musical document? 
Well, it is a musical, that's for sure. It's not some kind of opera in disguise. It's a musical, but of course, it's not a musical comedy. It's kind of a musical that's a tragedy. And I think, in a lot of ways, this was one of the things that was why it was such an appealing project for all of them. They wanted to do something that would make a difference and show them to be trying to do something that other people hadn't much tried in the past. The idea that came to them in the middle of the 50s for something that was going to be shocking but also incredibly exciting is what makes West Side Story unlike any other musical I've ever seen. And serious in some fashion. Oh, very much so. A social Uh, statement. Sure. They were all young, eager, liberal-minded people who wanted to kind of make a difference, if you like. I think what's great about it, though, is that it avoids being sort of preachy. And that was something they were very keen to avoid from the start. They wanted it to be kind of raw and not to have too much of a kind of moral message. What is the quality of the message? Or is it all in the dance, do you think? Ah, well, I think it's all in the dance and in the music and in, you know, obviously the lyrics. Dear kindly Sergeant Grubke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all our junkies, our fathers all our drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love. But also in what is probably the shortest book, you know, libretto, text uh, for just about any Broadway show. It's incredibly compact. This is Arthur Lawrence's doing and the theatrical timing of it's marvellous. There's not a kind of spare bit of flesh on it. Nigel, I'm fascinated by why the music lasts. My kids, even my grandkids love this music. I saw it on stage early in New York but it's real music. Start with the, the prologue if you will. What are we listening to musically? Well, musically, what we're listening to is some very clever manipulation of a particular musical interval. This is called a tritone. I'll show it to you on the piano. Uh, This is the kind of musical interval that sticks in your mind and that we hear a lot of in West Side Story. If you play an A like that, and if you then play an E flat like that, or you can go the other way... And what we get all over West Side Story is this interval. And sometimes it's combined with another one. So at the very beginning, the first thing you hear is... And then you get a tune of that wonderful slinky tune at the beginning of the prologue on the sax, where it goes... Again, there... And it gives it this kind of slightly kind of edgy, slightly not very comfortable, unsettled feeling. Of course, that's absolutely the key to how we're meant to feel. And that interval of the tritone, which people have always talked about as being the devil's interval and all that sort of thing, I don't think that was a huge conscious planning decision because that's not the way a musical's written. But I think given that they were thinking in terms of conflict and unease, it's one of those intervals, musical intervals, that kind of comes to mind when you're trying to put together a tune that kind of gets that. I remember talking about that tritone. It's the opening melody in Maria. 
It's it also the th- the interval in cool. Yep. Totally different effects. Yes, but again, it can do one or two things. In Maria, what it does is kind of, when it moves, it moves upwards, so it kind of resolves. Maria, so you're kind of on that note and you want to go somewhere, and it goes up and suddenly you feel like you're relaxing when it gets to that upper note. Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria, and suddenly that name will never be the same to me. Whereas in Cool, it's exactly the same musical interval, but, you know, with the rhythms underneath, with the general sense of the thing kind of rocking back and forth, going back to the note it started on and so on, it's completely the opposite effect and you feel really quite unsettled by it. You get a sense that this was a guy who whistled tritones, who sang tritones in the shower. You certainly do, and I'm certain that he did, yes. <laughs> the tritone, between a perfect fourth and a perfect fifth, is also yeah. known in jazz, especially in that era, as the flatted fifth. It was a bebop standby. Sure. Is he adopting something here out of somebody else's repertoire? Where we get him using bebop kind of effects brilliantly is in a thing like the Cool Fugue, where he throws together this crazy combination of sort of Stravinsky and jazz and gets this marvellous... Well, it could either be a, a most terrible mess or an incredibly thrilling cocktail. And in Westside, for the most part, that's it's the thrilling cocktail we get. With Bernstein, it all feels like the same musical language. None of it feels as if it's kind of borrowing from something else. It all feels of a piece, at least it does in West Side Story. And I think that's one of the reasons why, even without seeing the show, just listening to the music is still a fabulous experience. Take us through some of these songs, Nigel, in whatever order you like, but in his order or or yours? Well, we might as well take it in the order it comes in the show. prologue gave them quite a lot of trouble. This, of course, is a purely instrumental number, but in it we get a lot of the seeds of what's to come later. First of all, there is all of the stuff with the tritones, but there's also quite complicated syncopations, and that is something, of course, he, he got from, from jazz, and endless having fun, really, kind of manipulating the ideas that he's introduced. So that idea that we heard at the beginning uh, becomes a much, 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 much quicker and nastier thing. (laughs) 
In other words, what we're getting here <laughs> is a bit of good old musical development in a completely classical sense. But the whole thing's got to a kind of fever pitch, this kind of organised mayhem uh, as things turn nasty. So, I mean, this is brilliant composing, and it's brilliant composing in an idiom that works superbly for the Broadway stage. Coming up, Lenny and Jazz, a two-way street. This is Open Source. Leonard Bernstein was born a century ago in Lawrence, Massachusetts, first child of immigrants from what is now Ukraine. He grew up at the Boston Latin School and Harvard. In his masterpiece musical, West Side Story, the writer Nigel Simeone makes clear that Bernstein never forgot a note of what he'd heard along the way. When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. Then we have the jet song, which brings back... Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. You're never alone. With that tritone again. You're home with your own. When company's expected, you're well protected. This is clever because it brings together what we might have thought was kind of kind of mood-setting music in the prologue. And suddenly when these guys are actually singing it, the jets are in gear, our cylinders are clicking, we realise it's not just a, a mood. It, this, is, this is suddenly a tune that's being attached to real people. And that suddenly kind of makes it much more vital thing, I think. When you're a jet, you're the top cat in town. You're the gold medal kid with a heavyweight crown. When you're a jet, you're the swing in his big little boy. You're a man, little man, you're a king. The jets are in... By the time we get to the end of the jet song, we know exactly what they're about, except that is, of course, for Tony, who comes in uh, and sings Something's Coming. Let's talk about that. Suddenly we go from quite well-organised bit of a sort of gang and we get Tony now dreaming dreams and wishing he wasn't a part of it, really. I got a feeling there's a miracle due Gonna come true, coming to me Could it be? Yes, it could. He's an idealist. He wants to get away. He wants to do his own thing. And this song manages that very well. And again, actually has tritones all over it. With a click, with a shock, phone will jingle, door will knock, open the And the other thing that's fantastic in this song is the combination of rhythms going on simultaneously in the orchestra. So when you listen to it, you've got da dum bum ba dum bum ba dum bum. You've got that going on in one place, and in the bass, you've got bum 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 bum, and they all combine, and they sort of shouldn't combine, but they do. So you've got this wonderful little kind of musical machine that's absolutely busting with syncopations, and it's fantastic. Will it be? Yes, it will. Maybe just by holding still, it'll be there. Come on, something, come on in. Don't be shy. Meet a guy, pull up a chair. The air is humming, and something great is coming. It's only 
just out of reach, down the block on a beach, maybe tonight. We're on the verge of Maria. Well, we're on the verge of the dance at the gym, and uh, that, of course, has in it one of the most exciting bits of music in the whole show, which is the fantastic Mambo. got these huge great very highly colored basically jazz chords bum 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 when they're all playing that together they're hardly ever playing normal chords underneath they're great big juicy highly 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 sort of dressed up chords with lots of extra notes in them to put it simply which is very much <laughs> bernstein's own take on just how complicated a mambo can be But it's also the fact that this is some of the most discordant music that someone have put on Broadway. Then you start getting the underscoring and Tony and Maria talking to each other and the, uh, the die is cast, as it were, at the end of the dance at the gym and then, indeed, we are into... Maria, the most beautiful sound I ever heard. It could be the most tawdry little romantic song so easily if it were not for the fact that the melody is just so cleverly put together. First of all, you've got the tritone, and then he turns it upside down. I mean, he's a dreamer, for heaven's sake. Life just isn't like that. To that extent, it's brilliant, because it's not a flat-out declaration of love. It's a song about how great a name sounds. I mean, nothing's happened yet, except for a glance across a crowded room. And I think all of that comes through so beautifully in the music here, as well as in the lyrics and in the dramatic situation that we're in. Nigel, what is Leonard Bernstein looking for and finding in the world of the Mambo Kings, of Tito Puente, for instance? Well, he was loving it for a start. He's not kind of stealing this stuff, but he's certainly taking some of the most exciting Latin jazz and using it as the way of generating the kinetic energy of the piece. It 
it's a very conscious thing to kind of use not just any old jazz either, but, you know, the most kind of exciting, progressive jazz that was around at the time and the most kind of fast-paced Latin rhythms as well to throw into the mix. And that combination is absolutely magical in this piece particularly it never sounds as if it's been borrowed it sounds as if it's been subsumed absorbed you know into whatever musical language Bernstein was speaking in 1956. Nigel to me this comes out of the miracle of Dizzy Gillespie meeting Chano Pozo in Havana I think it was 1948 but that fusion of jazz and Latin rhythm the world was never the same. Yeah I agree completely. And I suspect Leonard Bernstein was never the same either. What's he doing in either in imitation, homage, or just enjoyment of that discovery? I think the just enjoyment is, uh, is absolutely spot on. He first became obsessed with these rhythms when he stayed in Key West for a vacation in the summer of 1941. And he was never the same after that. I mean, the first piece he finished when he was there was the clarinet sonata. The second movement is this fabulous kind of combination of Copelandish harmonies and rhythms that could only have come straight out of, you know, Havana. And that kind of relish in these Latin rhythms was something that was there, in other words, right from the time Bernstein finished his studies, which was that year in 1941. And it just became more and more and more intense. It had kind of wormed its way into his musical soul. So when he was writing this stuff, it felt like it was part of him rather than part of something else that he'd heard on a radio, you know, 15 years earlier. He'd gotten so passionate about what these rhythms could do when applied to his own sort of work. So by the time of West Side, this was... This was the language he spoke naturally. What's extraordinary is that it's incredibly hard work. And, you know, every note of this is written down. And when you look at the manuscripts of Westside, they're all in Library of Congress, you know, he really had to work at getting some of the effects he wanted. It didn't just kind of come easy. We haven't even mentioned jazz, but this is an important time in the history of jazz. He's a year or two years away from Miles Davis and John Coltrane making In a Day Kind of Blue, still the biggest record ever in jazz. But he's also right smack on Duke Ellington being reborn at Newport in 1956 to the cover of Time magazine. So fit the multifarious Leonard Bernstein's mind ambition in that scene. That's a great picture you paint because I think he was not a great jazzer himself let's be clear he had great gifts but you know being a jazz pianist was a kind of marginal one what he did have was an incredible respect that went right back to the time of his undergraduate thesis for the potency of jazz or the originality of it and for the value of it to all musicians. And as jazz was in the 50s starting to become 
much more, uh, not just sophisticated, but complex. I mean, the harmonies were becoming much richer and more complicated. I mean, thanks to people like, you know, Gil Evans' arrangements for Miles and, and so on. And Thelonious Monk and Coleman Hawk and so many. Jazz had been reinvented sure. in the mid-40s, and it came back uh, blacker, more difficult, more complicated, rhythmically, harmonically, in every way. Yeah. And he surely heard every note of that change. He absolutely did. And, of course, since he was, since Bernstein was, quite uneasy about the direction that a lot of classical music was taking at exactly the same time, that direction being 12-tone, atonal music, which he never really completely sympathized with he felt that you know music needed to kind of be anchored somewhere harmonically in a chord in a in a note in a key and of course jazz was bernstein drew on jazz and jazz masters drew on west side story for example in many albums rearrangements for big band all-stars Composer Augusta Reed Thomas is drawing on Bernstein energy to this day in 2018. She was a Tanglewood student of Lenny's in the 1980s. I spent three summers as a fellow at Tanglewood, and in all three summers met Mr. Bernstein, and I have lots of stories along the Tanglewood front. When you mention Leonard Bernstein, my mind races in about 30 different directions. (laughs) So did his. Yeah, I mean, he he was such an incredible person. I mean, when you think about the music that he wrote, and then you think about everything he conducted, then all the recordings he made, the books he wrote, the fact that he was an excellent educator, he cared about social issues, political issues. He was sort of a larger-than-life person, and yet also, in a certain way, you know, extremely down-to-earth. You know, he was right there with the with the exact note of the Beethoven Seventh Symphony Slow Movement. He was right there at one with it, while at the same time being a man of the universe in many, many ways. Yeah, I think he's one of the greatest artists ever, basically. What did you learn from Leonard Bernstein, Gusty? When I was young, I was a fellow at Tanglewood. My good friend, Oliver Nusson, who recently died unfortunately, invited me. I was very young to come be a fellow at Tanglewood. And then he invited me a second summer, and then he invited me a third summer. I remember that one of the highlights of the summer was the night when the composers got to play their music for Leonard Bernstein. And there were six composition fellows. And this was up at Saranac, the beautiful house. And of course, it was a long evening, and there seemed to be a lot of alcohol floating around. And each of the composers got to play a piece for Leonard Bernstein, and then he would comment. And then there were also, of course, many people listening, like just an audience sort of of people that were there. And I remember, you know, the first year playing a piece for him and what he said to me and what he said to the other composers. And then the same happened the second year. And I remember, you know, exactly what he said and how it how it went. And I loved his energy. He was sort of bigger than life. Um, it was it was quite amazing. 
and so I, I always treasure those moments. I look back at them and I, there's a photograph of me having my lesson with Bernstein that somebody sent me and I, I look at it and I think, wow, that's so amazing that I was like sitting right next to him on the couch and he's like staring at my symphony. It's like, whoa, how did that happen? And he said about it? He was very positive. I was lucky. And then he, he remembered that I was from Beckett, Mass. He couldn't believe that there was a composer from Beckett, Mass. He just couldn't, he couldn't believe it. Like, so he kept calling me the composer from Lee. He kept calling me the lady composer from Lee. And then the second year I played this piece for orchestra and chorus and he really, really liked it. And he actually made the entire group hear it a second time. He said, this is real music. This is a real composer. Rewind the tape. In those days it was cassette tapes. Rewind the tape. He said, we're going to sit and we're going to listen to the whole thing again. And he made everyone listen to the whole thing again. And then he had lots of really positive comments. And I just, it was just such a boost because I was like the youngest in the class by far. And I don't know, it just, it's a small thing. I mean, the piece wasn't very good. He was probably being way too nice, but he could, he could hear in it the musicality, I guess. And that just gave me, you know, I went back to Beckett and kept composing, <laughs> you know, and here I am, you know, whatever it is, uh, many, many years later, and I'm still composing like, you know, 15 hours a day, every day. Long before Sesame Street, Leonard Bernstein made television a teaching device in a CBS series that young audiences never forgot. With the New York Philharmonic behind him, he spoke with the Lenny voice that his daughter Jamie knew from home. Okay. Now, what do you think that music's all about? Can you tell me? God. That's just what I thought you'd say. Cowboys, bandits, horses, the Wild West. I know my little daughter, Jamie, who's five years old and who's sitting up there, agrees with you. When she heard me play this piece, she said, ooh, the Lone Ranger saw. I owe silver. Well, I hate to disappoint her, and you too, but it really isn't about the Lone Ranger at all. It's about notes, E flats and F sharps. You see, no matter how many times people tell you stories about what music means, forget them. Stories aren't what music means about, at all. Music is never about anything. Music just is. Music is notes, beautiful notes and sounds put together in such a way that we get pleasure out of listening to them. That's all there is to it. Here's Jamie Bernstein today. If you just knew about Leonard Bernstein from watching him conduct the Young People's Concert or from actually seeing him conducting the New York Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall or later Lincoln Center, and you always saw him in his white tie and tails, you would think he was a very fancy, forbidding, intimidating person. He was actually a very warm, hilarious, delicious person to be around, extravagantly affectionate and full of stories. He remembered every vaudeville routine from his childhood, and he remembered every Jewish joke, and of course also every piece of literature and music that he ever read, and, and he felt compelled to share anything he was excited mm. about. So that was the atmosphere that we grew up in. Coming up, for West Side Story, Lenny knew how to borrow ideas, sometimes steal them from the best. This is open source. Leonard Bernstein's borrowings for West Side Story began with Shakespeare and the lyrical drama 
of the star-crossed lovers Romeo and Juliet. Our West Side scholar in London, Nigel Simeone, tracks the uneasy translation of Wherefore art thou, Romeo? What you have with the balcony scene is the one uh, instance we know of a bit of show doctoring going on for West Side Story. It was a show that needed very little doing to it. Unlike most famous Broadway shows, notoriously something like Fiddler on the Roof, you know, what you heard at the start of the previews was almost a different show from what you had by the time it got to Broadway. West Side... Very little changed, but one thing did. If you look at the manuscripts of the, all the separate songs, you find a very interesting one on One Hand, One Heart, which, you remember, is the one that we hear in the bridal store where, you know, they go and dress up in, in wedding clothes. And at the top of the original manuscript for that, it says balcony scene mm. and originally one hand one heart which was a song that <laughs> most of the uh, wonderful creative team that worked on the show really didn't think much of they thought it was a bit of a dud and certainly they thought it was a bit dull compared with quite a lot else and so they asked oscar hammerstein to come in and take a look at it and he said this has got this has got to go this is i mean you, you know if you must keep this tune uh, put it somewhere where it doesn't matter because what it won't do is give us the kind of rapture of uh, you know newfound secret love and then they had the idea bernstein and sondheim had the idea of taking the music from the quintet which they'd already written which has the tonight tune in the middle of it, and kind of reverse engineering the balcony scene out of that, which is exactly what they did. So the music we hear in the balcony scene, the tonight duet, which is the most wonderful thing, this soaring melody with a, a, a kind of endlessly gently energetic accompaniment, um, and it was a kind of happy accident that we got to hear that at this point in the show as well as a little bit later on. It's a completely magical moment, and it all is in very strange keys. We're in C flat major, F flat major, and he's having a ball. One song that we haven't talked about, and, uh, I mean, there's, there's an interesting story to tell about it. Uh, I mean, America, which is in some ways a bit uncharacteristic, you know? America doesn't feel quite a, quite of a piece with the rest of the show to me, and th there is actually a reason for that. <laughs> this is the immigrant song. This is the immigrant song. And the baby's crying yeah, And the bullet's flying 
This actually started life in a ballet that he never finished called Conk Town in 1941. And you look through the score of this ballet, which only exists in a version for two pianos and percussion. So that tune had been around ever since uh, Lenny listening to radio from Cuba back in 1941. But then we come to Cool, which I think is one of the absolutely greatest songs in the whole of West Side Story. Boy, boy, crazy boy, get cool, boy. Got a rocket in your pocket. Keep coolly cool, boy. Don't get hot, cause man, you got some high times ahead. In the music, it's got a wonderful marking. It's marked solid and boppy jazz feel well yes indeed so this is well not a pure jazz number but it's as jazzy a number as we get in west side story and it's absolutely full of the most wonderfully complex jazz chords as well so he's showing off in this one we have that wonderful bit where the the hi-hat is going and we think well where's this going to go and suddenly we're off into this crazy feud Action. And not just any old fugue, but a fugue that uses every note of the chromatic scale. Easy. All of this kind of learned chromatic contrabundal writing goes on at the same time, you know, as this very kind of archetypal hi-hat rhythm on the kit. He's throwing the two together in what ought to be a kind of outrageous mixture, and it just works a treat. So uh, there's a lovely note on the manuscript in the middle of the cool fugue. Jerome Robbins' rehearsal pianist, Betty Wand, was a woman who was famous for being able to play absolutely anything. And so when Bernstein gave her the piano arrangements of these things as he was writing them, he sent a note to her saying, Betty, don't even try to play everything that's going on here. It, you won't be able to do it. Even you won't be able to do it. And that's true, because what we get in this bit of instrumental music in the middle of Cool is, on the one hand, a very clever fugue, but he makes life so much more challenging for himself and so much more interesting for us by throwing over the top of that a jazz piece that kind of evolves out of its own steam. It's absolutely dazzling. Dazzling because you can actually see on the page these amazingly complex ideas running in parallel, with, simultaneously with each other, and then coalescing at the point of crisis.
speaking of fabulous complexity, pull apart the inspirations inside the rumble. Oh, my word. Well, the rumble, yeah, is, is a, a extraordinary. Uh, I think with the rumble, we come closest to one of the big classical influences, actually, on uh, West Side Story, and that's Stravinsky. It's the sort of music that you might have written if you were very clever, very gifted, and had just been conducting quite a lot of performances of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And I think uh, the rumble is where we come closest to that influence. I mean, there's not that much very specifically Stravinsky-like about West Side Story, though a lot of the complicated rhythms were something that he knew from Stravinsky as well as from the, the best of jazz. Um, but uh, what we get here is is this, uh, this sort of wild, unhinged sort of feel to the music in order to create, uh, you know, a, 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 a musical context for what does end up being you know, two corpses uh, on the stage at the Act One curtain. I mean, it was not a Broadway thing, shall we say. Any other sources to be cited here? Beethoven, even. Well, Beethoven certainly in There's a Place for Us. There is a moment in the slow movement of the Emperor Piano Concerto, the fifth piano concerto of Beethoven, which is, of course, the same as the start of There's a Place for Us. Now, I don't think it is a deliberate quote. Composers absorb the music that they know really well, and sometimes when it comes out... Uh, you know, from themselves, it bears a striking resemblance to something that we all know. Bernstein knew his Beethoven extremely well. Actually, the one that's much more interesting is in the Cool Fugue, the actual notes uh, of the Cool Fugue. It's a very similar idea in Beethoven's great fugue, the Grossa Fuga, the, the, this terrifying, terrifying, uh, extremely late work for string quartet uh, that is uh, uh, one of the kind of great uh, sort of uh, sacred monsters of the classical repertory. probably was uh, much more conscious of what he was doing because it's a very unusual idea. It's so what we call chromatic. It, it, it never feels as if it's, it wants to be in one key. It's kind of slithering around uh, in a very unsettled way. And that's exactly what Beethoven does and it's exactly what Bernstein does in the same place. There could be a bit of Wagner. Now, Wagner was not Bernstein's favourite composer for all sorts of reasons. 
And one of the most obvious being that Wagner is nobody's best friend, shall we say. I mean, he was just such a dreadful, dreadful man. So we have that situation. But nonetheless, there is in I Have a Love, and it comes right at the very end of the show as well, at that wonderful epilogue after Maria has berated the two gangs and they process off with Tony's corpse and you get this little musical idea da 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 di now this may be far fetched but there is, at the end of Wagner's mighty ring cycle, at the end of Goethe Demerung, the fourth opera in the ring cycle, there is this marvellous idea, which we've heard, you know, days earlier in one of the earlier operas as well. And it's a redemption motif. It's, it's specifically, the, it, what it's supposed to represent is redemption through love. Now, I can't help feeling that there is a conscious or subconscious, probably subconscious, uh, borrowing going on there. Because the whole idea of I Have a Love, it's very much the same idea of love being the only thing that is going to redeem anything or anyone. And of course, you know, in Wagner, it's come after the end of the world, for God's sake. You know, the Rhine's burst, it banks, everything's gone up in flames. It's all a bit far-fetched. It's somehow an awful lot closer to home when it's happening, uh, you know, on what could almost be any street corner in quite a lot of parts of New York City. He's not sort of stealing these things. Composers don't do that. Or at least if they do, they still want it to sound like their own stuff. And, it, and it, it, in this case, it certainly does. It's a complicated thing, in other words. But yes, there are certainly a lot of elements of uh, Beethoven, uh, Wagner, Stravinsky, and who knows who else. Nigel, this is incredibly useful. A little overwhelming. We have a compendium of Western music in this show. As Alex Ross said, a sophisticated essay in 20th century style, but also the voice of one man. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I think it's, it's exactly that. But the wonderful thing is that all of those elements that Alex is talking about have become coalesced in one man who sounds as if he's speaking his own language and only his own language in West Side. And I think that's what gives it such quality. I mean, it has an incredible variety and yet fabulous kind of coherence to it. And I think that is the, the miracle of this show. It's probably helpful that they didn't kind of mess around with it a, a bit at a time over many years. You know, the actual composing was done very importantly once Sondheim was on board to write the lyrics as well. So he was kind of literally side by side with Bernstein when they were working on a lot of these songs. So in other words, there's real synergy between the lyrics and the music. I mean, there's a lot of real composing craft gone into it. But at the same time, 
these wonderful tunes that you just can't get out of your head, this fantastic engagement with the way that jazz was moving at the time, this wonderful flair for Latin rhythms. Any way you slice your way into Westside, you're going to find something that sort of speaks to a part of you. And it's never stopped speaking to me ever since I first encountered this wonderful piece uh, as a kid watching the movie when I was 10. I have never escaped the clutches of West Side Story, and I hope I never do. <laughs> Nigel Simeone, it makes a wonderful hour to hear you take it apart and put it together again. West Side Story. Everybody knows it. Almost everybody loves it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Happy 100, Lenny. Our grandkids are listening with us and loving it. Thank you, Nigel Simeone, Jamie Bernstein, Augusta Reed Thomas, and many who helped. Virginia Eskin, Yehudi Weiner, Ron Feldman, Matt O'Coin, and Bernadette Horgan. Our show was composed by the radio band of sound designer Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, Susan Coyne, George Hicks, and our conductor, Mary McGrath. At the end of the year, please consider a little something for the stocking of the hardest-working team in radio and keep the longest-running podcast in history running. I'm Christopher Lydon. Thank you, listeners, for being part of the project. This is Open Source. <laughs>